This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Follow Bruce, hopefully. Man, I'm going to Exodus. Well, good morning. We have uh, completed our study on the Psalms of Ascent. And as I've been told you a couple times in in the past, uh, we're going to move on from there uh, to our study in the book of the Gospel of John. Uh, But over the next few weeks, I'm going to be taking my yearly planning break. And so rather than preach one sermon on John and then skip a few weeks, I thought what I would do, hold one moment, is uh, preach a message that I I gave at uh, Trinity at the Marketplace uh, back in July, just to to, to share that with you guys, and uh, then we'll start John uh, at the beginning of October. So before we go there, let's pray that the Lord would bless our time in His Word. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this morning. My prayer is as we just sang that You would break up our stony hearts, that you would plant your word deep in us in order, Lord, to show us Christ. Father, we pray that you would reveal your glory through the preaching of your word as we just sang until every tongue confesses that Christ is Lord. And so, Father, it is in His name that I pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 28 this morning. Genesis chapter 28, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles, you're probably familiar with this story. It's commonly referred to as Jacob's Ladder. And as you're turning there, that means I want to take you back in time. The year was 1970. Bell-bottoms were in style. Gas was about 35 cents a gallon. Your parents still had hair. (laughs) Kids, that's back when you had to get up and actually go to the TV to change one of the four channels that you were able to watch if you wanted to. But the year was 1970. And two young men named Jimmy Page and Robert Plant wrote a a little ditty based on this Bible story. You may have heard it. It's called Stairway to Heaven. It's okay. You can admit it. You have freedom in Christ. You will not be scolded. But it's the iconic last lines of this song that are interesting to me. It's the part where Robert Plant starts belting out. And as we wind on down the road, our shadows taller than our soul, there walks a lady we all know who shines white light and wants to show how everything still turns to gold. Now, I'm not on enough narcotics to tell you exactly what that means, but one thing I can tell you is I don't think Robert Page and Jimmy Plant, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, (laughs) 
spent a ton of time reading the story that this song was based on. Because it's a story about a guy for whom everything has clearly not turned to gold. Look at verse 10 of Genesis chapter 8. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, in addition to using a rock for a pillow, verse 19 will eventually tell us that this place is near a town called Luz. And geography tells us that this area is very desolate. It's about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's about 1,200 feet in elevation. This place is a sun-scorched, wind-blown hilltop with scrub brush being about the only green thing among the rocks and the weeds. You might think of it like northeast Albuquerque up against the mountains. But here's why that's important. You see, this location isn't noted by accident. It's meant to tell us something about Jacob. Think back. What do we know about him so far if we were to go back in Genesis? Well, chapter 25 told us that he was basically born and having a fight, in the middle of a fight with his brother to see who would get to go first. Now, that might not seem that out of the ordinary for anyone who has kids, but it didn't stop there. Chapter 25 also told us that as they grew, Esau became the hunter, the man's man, tools and trucks. And but it says that Jacob liked to stay in the house. It said that he liked to live in the tents. He was quiet. It's the Hebrew way of saying he was a mama's boy. Which is why not only did he trick his brother Esau into selling his birthright for soup, but later Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, tricked Isaac into giving Jacob Esau's blessing. Which led to the narrator giving us a a peek into Esau's private thoughts in, in Genesis chapter 27 verse 41 where Esau vowed to kill Jacob as soon as Isaac died. So Jacob and Rebekah again manipulated Isaac into sending Jacob away under the pretense of finding a wife, when in reality they just wanted to put some distance between Jacob and Esau so Esau wouldn't kill him. Which brings us to now, where Jacob, who grew up in luxury, keep that in mind, His father and grandfather, Abraham and Isaac, were very wealthy men. uh, Jacob has lived a life of luxury. But now, because of his own actions, Jacob has had to flee his family, his comfortable home, and has been reduced to using a pillow, a rock for a pillow. In other words, all this imagery is intended to emphasize for us that our story opens up with Jacob not only in a desolate place physically, but spiritually as well. Jacob's spiritual state is just as barren as where he decided to spend the night. I mean, with such a close relationship with his mother, surely she has told him by now the, the promise that God made to her that the younger or the older will serve the younger, that he didn't need to steal the birthright. But but even if for some reason he hasn't heard that story, he certainly, think of all the stories that Jacob must have heard about his father and grandfather's dealings with God. 
Yet up till now, Jacob hasn't wanted to have anything to do with God. We've seen nothing in Jacob's life except scheming and manipulation. And all his actions have done is drive him further away from the God who has blessed his family immeasurably. I wonder if you've ever been there. Been been where Jacob is. And I don't mean in a desolate place physically. We live in New Mexico. That's a given. I mean in a desolate place spiritually. That place where your sin and the trials of this world have conspired to dry out your soul like the, like, the, like the sun does the weeds. You just feel empty. You feel lost. Maybe you don't have to remember. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe this morning you feel distant from God. Like the last thing you deserve is to be with Him or have His favor or anything. Well, wherever you are, This morning, I want to convince you that our God makes a way. I want to persuade you that no matter where you are, that our God makes a way. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 12, where first we see that our God makes a way by blessing people who don't deserve it. By blessing people who don't deserve it. He says in uh, Genesis 28, verse 12, After he fell down to sleep, verse 12, and he, that's Jacob, dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Uh, Let's stop there. Before we move on, let's get this angels thing out out of the way. What's what's that about? Because we kind of like to make more out of them than there really are. Well, because they're cool. And so we like to think that there might be more than they are. But angels are simply God's messengers, which means in this passage, the focus isn't the angels. No, the focus is the Lord at the top of the ladder. The angels being his messengers, they simply represent that God is conducting business here with Jacob. His messengers are interacting with him. So what exactly is the message? Well, look at the second half of verse 13. The Lord said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. <clears throat> now, God's already said that several times before in the previous chapters of Genesis. It's the same promise that he made to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob's father and grandfather. But based on what we just talked about, based on who Jacob is, we have to ask, how can God make promises like that to him? How can God make those kind of grand promises to someone who has not wanted to have anything to do with God? I mean, at least Abraham believed God when when God told him to move from Ur to Canaan. And and Isaac had some faith when, when him and his dad walked up that mountain for the sacrifice. But Jacob hasn't displayed anything but a willingness to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. 
So why is God blessing Jacob like this? Well, friend, the truth of the matter is this. Our God's in the business of blessing people who don't deserve it. And he's good. He's good at it. Again, I'm, I'm sure you recognize this blessing. It's the same one he gave to Abraham and Isaac, and that's the point. The blessing is the key. I counted, and in, and in these three short verses, God used the term, I will, in conjunction with the definite article, shall, nine times. I will, therefore, this shall happen. I will, therefore, this shall happen. Nine times. Meaning, this blessing was as dependent on Abraham and Isaac as it is on Jacob. God is clearly telling Jacob the same thing he told his father and his grandfather, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. Listen, if you're here this morning and, and you think you don't deserve God, if you think you're not good enough for God, if you think you need to get cleaned up a little bit for God, like you need to do better before God will like you, most of the people in here know the most freeing truth that you can ever know. If you don't think you deserve God, it's way worse than you think. It is way worse than you think. And the longer you refuse to accept that, the longer you believe the lie that you can be good enough for God, the longer you miss out on the blessed truth that we don't serve a God who, who blesses people who deserve it because there ain't any. No, the blessed truth is we serve a God who makes a way for us by blessing people who don't deserve it. How's that possible? I mean, if God says he is who he says he is, if he is this righteous and holy God, how can he bless people that don't deserve it and stay God? Well, brothers and sisters, the answer is, is as simple as it is profound. The answer is this little incident with Jacob on this hilltop was just a warm-up. This was just a preview of what was going to come later. Meaning about 1,600 years later, this conversation about a ladder would come up again. If you remember what Jesus told Nathaniel this morning in our call to worship, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's basically the same thing that Jacob saw with one difference. Meaning, meaning listen, what happened to Jacob on this desolate hilltop was just a preview of what would happen on another desolate hill called Calvary where God revealed that this ladder that Jacob saw, this way that a holy God made to interact with depraved people, would actually be a man, not a ladder. And that man's name was Jesus of Nazareth, the almighty Son of Man, who would conquer sin and death. Just like God promised Jacob at the end of verse 14, Jesus would be the offspring of Jacob who would bless people who don't deserve it by being the latter, by being the one through whom God the Father would make a, a way for depraved people like you and I by dying for our sins. So, so if you don't feel like you deserve God's blessing, you're right, you don't. But here's the thing, our God made a way through Jesus Christ. 
And all you have to do is believe you need him to. All you have to do is believe you need Jesus' perfect life in exchange for the one that you have ruined. All you need is that, all you need to do is believe that you need Jesus' perfect death in exchange for the one you deserve. All you need to do is believe that you need Jesus' perfect resurrection in exchange for the one you don't deserve. And he'll give it to you. He'll give you the blessing that he promised Jacob in exchange for simply believing you need him to. And I'm not talking about the perfect life or perfect health or a bunch of money or anything like that. That's silly. He'll give you something much, much better. He'll give you himself. Just like he promised Jacob in verse 15, he'll bless you with himself. In other words, listen, when we were separated, our God made a way for us to be brought near. When we were lost, he made a way for us to be found. When we were at war with God, he made a way for us to have peace. When we hated God, he made a way for us to love him. Because while we were hopeless, he made a way for us to be hopeful. Because while we were wicked, he made a way for us to be righteous. Because while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, he made a way for us to be alive. That's the God we serve. The God who made a way for us by blessing us through Jesus Christ, even though we didn't deserve a lick of it. Which means it doesn't end there. Look at verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Now, that might not mean much to us if we don't put it into context. Meaning, what has Jacob not done at all in any of the previous chapters. Well, chapters 12 and 13 are full of Abraham building altars and worshiping. Chapter 26 tells us that Isaac built an altar and worship. But here's the thing, if you do the math, if you do the math based on some dates that are coming up in in Genesis, Jacob is at least in his 70s here. And not once have we heard about him worshiping. Not once in his entire life have we heard about him worshiping. Until now. Until now. In other words, not only does does our God make a way by blessing people who don't deserve it, but he also makes a way by drawing people to worship who haven't wanted it. He also makes a way by drawing people to worship who haven't wanted it. Jacob hasn't wanted anything to do with God. Yet here on this hilltop, where Jacob is literally sleeping in the bed he's made for himself, our God is drawing him to worship. So how about you? You ever find yourself in a place like Jacob? You know, like, like have you ever felt cold when it comes to worship? Because you see, there's this interesting thing that happens to every single Christian every week. It's called Monday. It's that day when life smacks us in the face with the drudgery and futility that it so often holds. 
You ever feel like that? You ever got to the end of the day and realized you hadn't thought about God once? What do we do with that? I mean, how can we keep ourselves from falling into that trap of of apathy that can be so familiar? Well, brothers and sisters, like everything else in life, the answer is in the Bible. It's in this passage. God showed up. God showed up in Jacob's life and promised him the same things he had promised Abraham and Isaac. He said, I will give you a people and I will give you a place and I will cause you to bless the nations and I will be with you. He gave him the unconditional covenant that would echo through eternity as all the rest of the covenants were built upon it. So what does Jacob do in verse 18? He set up a pillar. Why did he do that? What's the point of a pillar? Well, it's like we talked last week. It's a reminder. It was a pillar so that every time he walked by, oh yeah, I forgot what happened here. And he would be reminded of what took place, how God had come down to him. In other words, brothers and sisters, listen, we need to develop an impulse, a reflex, if you will, that when we feel cold, when we find ourselves apathetic toward worship, the best thing that we can do is remember, remember the sheer grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember that He came to us when we couldn't go to Him. Remember that He died for us when we had nothing to offer. And remember that He's promised to pull us out of the grave just like Him. Find a way to remind yourself of those truths. And I promise you that God will draw you to worship. I promise you. Because I don't think it's possible for a Christian not to worship when they remember what God's done for them in Jesus Christ. It's not possible. I mean, just talking about it right now, the Holy Spirit wants to jump out of my skin. That's what Jesus has done for us. Saints, our God makes a way not only by blessing people who don't deserve it, but by drawing people to worship who haven't wanted any of it. That's what He does. So everything's good now, right? Most of you are still awake. You've been listening. You've heard the Word of God, so you've got this thing called life handled now. Look what happened in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. Did you see it? Did you, did you catch what Jacob's trying to do? It's like this. Jacob is trying to take an unconditional covenant and make it conditional. He's trying to take an unconditional promise that God made to him and make it conditional. It's like God said, I will do this and I will do that without any requirement from you, Jacob, because that's how I choose to, to glorify my great name. And Jacob's like, I hear you, God. I like where this is going. 
How about this? How about you give me the place and the land and all of that other stuff, and I'll give you 10%. That's the best I can do. I'm losing money here. It's like, dude, he just said he was going to do it regardless of you. Here's the thing. You and I do that all the time. All the time. Let me prove it to you. We still try to make God's unconditional grace dependent on our actions. We still try to make God's unconditional grace dependent on our actions. When you go to God for forgiveness, for that same sin that you've been confessing for weeks on end, when you go to God to confess that terrible thing that you swore you'd never do again, how do you envision God looking at you? Don't don't we see Him arms crossed, turning away, eyes full of disappointment? Like He's saying, I can't believe you did that. I mean, I thought you said you were a Christian. Isn't that how we see Him? In other words, we still think God's approval rests on how good we are. We still think God's approval has to do with how good we are. Listen, that's called the goodness gospel, and it's heresy. It is evil. It's the gospel that says, if I do good, then God will be happy with me. Brothers and sisters, this couldn't be further from the truth, and there's two reasons for that. First, it assumes that God's as ignorant as we are about whether we'll sin again. Like it's this big cosmic accident. And God's up, up, up top, like we are down here, like, I never thought I'd do that again. And God's like, I, I'm God, I knew you were going to do it again. But secondly, more importantly... The goodness gospel is evil because it diminishes the work of Jesus Christ. When the truth is that the life of Jesus was so effective, the sacrifice of Jesus was so powerful, and the resurrection of Jesus is so lasting, that your God doesn't stand by you begrudgingly. Like, well, I promised to stand by these losers, so I guess I have to. No. If you believe in Jesus, when God looks at you, He sees Christ. And when He sees Jesus, He smiles. In other words, brothers and sisters, the work of Jesus Christ is so powerful, so perfect, that your God looks at you with a smile on His face. Now that doesn't mean we continue to sin. Absolutely not. That's a different sermon. But the last reason I want to give you to worship before I sit down is this. You see, even though Jacob didn't get it, the rest of the story tells us something. It tells us that our God makes a way, not only by blessing people who don't deserve it and drawing people to worship who haven't wanted it, but our God has made a way through Jesus Christ to happily stand by His people even when they don't get it. Our God has made a way through Jesus Christ to happily stand by His people even when they don't get it. 
Listen, the same God who promised Jacob in verse 15, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you, has made the exact same promise to you and I. Several times in the Bible, our Savior said, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Romans chapter 8, Paul gave us what we call the golden chain, where he said, those who, who, whom I predestined are also called, those who are called will be justified, and those who are justified will be glorified. There's no dropouts in the economy of God. Because Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Not you, him. He's faithful to complete it. And listen, the assurance of that promise has as much to do with you and I as it did with Jacob. Which means, brothers and sisters, the hope of the gospel, the certainty to which we cling. When we find ourselves in Jacob's shoes in desolate places is the fact that if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that He is your Lord and Savior, then listen, you serve a God who happily stands by you even when you don't get it. Can I put that into simple English for you? If you believe in Jesus Christ, even you can't screw it up. That's the truth. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have the power to usurp the love and the grace that God has for you. Amen? However, maybe you're thinking, I want to address this. I keep saying that our God has made a way, and it sounds wonderful, but maybe you're thinking that, that you want to believe what I'm saying, but it certainly doesn't always feel like He makes a way. It doesn't always feel like He makes a way. Like maybe you had a big plan for your life. I'm going to go to this school, and I'm going to get this degree, and I'm going to get this job, and these promotions, and marry this woman, and have this many kids, and we're going to live happily ever after. Whatever. And God's like, that's cute. In other words, listen, the reason it doesn't always feel like God has made a way is because He doesn't always make our way. God doesn't always make our way. Because you see, when it comes to life, we're terrible navigators. The Bible says our compass is broken. All of us think that way is the best way to go. Which means oftentimes our way is headed toward wickedness, towards apathy, toward materialism, toward greed. Frequently, the way we want to go is down the path of idolatry. Which is why, even though it doesn't always feel like it, our God is still making a way. He still makes a way for us to go the way He wants us to, instead of the way we want to. He still makes a way, even though it doesn't feel like it. When He orchestrates the circumstances and even the hardships we need to experience in order to go the better way that He's made. Brothers and sisters, if it doesn't feel like God is making the right way for you, that's exactly the proof that He is. He's teaching you something. He's showing you something. Sometimes He has to hold you down to do it. But it's a good way. It's a better way. So let me close by describing what believing this might actually look like in our lives. Let me give you three ways that knowing God makes a way might look tomorrow. 
First, saints, if our God has made a way, how can those around us not wonder at the hope they see in our lives? I mean, if we believe what we see here in Genesis 28, and we believe that it has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ, then even as our culture disintegrates around us, even as our governor says really stupid things, how can those around us not marvel at the hope that we have? Do whatever you want, leaders. My God's going to make a way. You can't get in it. That's hope. How can the world not see it? That's first. Second, if we believe that our God has made a way, that He will never leave us, that the promise He made to Jacob is literally alive inside of us, if we believe that, then how can those around us not be drawn to the joy that they see in us? How can they not be drawn to the joy they see in us? And I'm not talking about that flimsy, fake joy that's found in the absence of conflict. I am talking about that robust, unyielding, God-built joy that's found in the midst of hardship, even. That's second. Lastly, brothers and sisters, if our God is the same God who made a way for Jacob, if He's the God who made a way for us by blessing us even when we didn't deserve it, and if He's the God who still makes a way for us by happily sticking by us, even when we don't get it, if that's the God that we have, then how can our lives not be consumed with worship? How can our lives not be consumed with worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because listen, He was faithful to His promise to Jacob. He was faithful to His promise to Jacob when He made a way for us to be with Him, when He made a way for us to live with Him, when He made a way for us to love Him through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that's the case, how can we not be consumed with the desire to say, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Stand with me, please, and let's make that our response.